I have the pleasure of sharing the gospel with you today. We're going to start by looking at a few verses on the screen together. So please go ahead and take a look while I turn on my clicker here. The first one, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are statements of truth that are given to us in the Bible, and they describe people who have acknowledged Jesus as their Savior and as the authority over their lives. Now, what I've done is kind of separated each of these scriptures into two parts, because each of these three scriptures has something in common. There's a before, and then there's an after. So if you look at them, in the one in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's the before, and are justified by his grace, that's the after. The one in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's the before, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that's the after. But you are a chosen race, and it continues on from there, but really the end is what I want you to look at in the one in First Peter. He has called you out of darkness, that's the before, and into his marvelous light, and that's the after. And that's really the basic premise of the gospel. It's about something that happened before, it's who I used to be, and then it's who I am now. And really, what God is, is, is teaching us through the gospel is that it's about moving from sin into righteousness. It's about moving from darkness into light. Now, whenever we decide to meditate on the gospel, like what we're going to do this morning, we kind of have to make a decision about which side of the story we're going to focus on. Because on one hand, you could focus uh, your energy on looking at this, this righteousness, how glorious is this righteousness that God has achieved on our behalf? What was his plan to make it happen? The execution, the aftermath, this glorious future that we have in a relationship with God? That would be like focusing on the righteousness side of the story. But on the other hand, we could also look at the other side, and we could focus on how grave was that sin that we found ourselves in? How deep was the pit from which we have been rescued? We can think of how bleak was that darkness. And that's actually the side of the story that I'd like us to focus on today. And if you're a Christian, you might be thinking that that sounds strange. Why would we even waste time focusing on the darkness of the past when we could be focusing on all this good over here? And here's why. Our appreciation of something grows the more we understand where it came from. That's sort of a simple principle that we're going to use today. Our appreciation of something grows the more we understand where it came from. Because if we can understand the the default inherent condition of something, it helps us to establish a baseline. And then 
As that thing changes over time, we can always compare back to the baseline as a reference point. And so, after a while, we can look back and we can see how significantly that thing has changed and really have an appreciation for it. I'll give an example. This is a picture of a typical family car. It's a people mover. It's fine, I guess, if you're into Chevys. (laughs) There's nothing marvelous about the car. It moves the family from point A to point B but nothing really fairly remarkable about it. But this is the after condition. You might have a different opinion when you see the before condition. You ready? This is what the car came from. Yeah. This car was messed up. And it kind of gives you a new appreciation for this standard run-of-the-mill family car, right? But the funny thing is nothing changed about that image over there. The only thing that changed is you now see this image over here. You have an appreciation for where it came from, and that helps you really feel differently about the car, This what would otherwise be a typical family car. Okay, and that's because our appreciation of something grows the more we understand where it came from. Let's do another example. Classical music back in the early 1800s was all the rage. It's what all the kids were listening to. So back at that time, it would have filled up like the pop music charts if there were radios back then. Kids loved classical music. But the thing about classical music at the time is that it had a lot of rules and criteria that had to be followed in order for it to be considered legitimate classical music. And everybody knew this. But then along came this young man by the name of Ludwig van Beethoven. And he started messing around with the rules a little bit. Now, it's not that he didn't know the rules. He knew the rules. He just deliberately started to break them. And before long, he became this this rebel on the classical music scene because he introduced this new form of classical music. It became known as the romantic period of classical music. And his compositions had these these outbursts of emotion and these, these grand expressions that just baffled the minds of people at the time. And for the diehard Classical music lovers of the early 1800s, they found that this man and his music was revolutionary. He was actually polarizing because the diehards thought he was just a lunatic. They had no idea what he was doing. But there were some people who saw his deliberate rule-breaking, and they called him a genius. But either way, whether, whether at the time you thought he was a lunatic or a genius, Beethoven and his music were remarkable. And that's because the people of the early 1800s had ears that were tuned to the way classical music was supposed to be at that time, before Beethoven. They understood the original condition of classical music in a way that we can't hear. If we were to hear Beethoven's music right now, it would probably sound like classical music to us. We'd just kind of shrug our shoulders. We'd probably call it elevator music. Blasphemy, right? But that's just because... Our ears are not tuned to the way classical music was supposed to sound at that time, right? And because of that, we'll probably never have an appreciation of Beethoven's music. And all of that is because our appreciation of something grows the more we understand where it came from. It's the same way with the gospel. Our appreciation of salvation grows the more we understand the sinful nature where we came from. So, the sinful nature. 
This is a word or a term that's described in the Bible as the default condition of a person. And depending on your English translation, you might see it in different ways. Sometimes you might see the words in sin, or you might see the words in the flesh. But really what it's all saying is that the default state of a human being, the baseline, the starting point for a human being, is hopelessness. Hopelessly separated from God for eternity. Now, if the gospel message tells us that we can be restored to God, that message will become more and more amazing to us the more we understand the depth from which we've been pulled, the sinful nature. So that's what I'd like us to talk about today. We're going to start by reading Ephesians chapter 2. Tom read it for us in the beginning, but I'd like us to read it again. And let's see, I'm going to back up a couple of slides. There it is. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, page 976, if you have a Bible on your chair. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, prince, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What if we conducted a nationwide survey with this one question? Deep down at the core of every human being, are people inherently good? Now, I haven't conducted the survey. I don't know what people would really say. But I'd be willing to bet that most people would say, yeah. Yeah, people are inherently good. Yeah, okay, some people come off as a little bit arrogant or prideful or angry or selfish or greedy. But really, when it all comes down to it, yeah, there's, there's an inherent good inside everyone. And we want to believe that's true. It even sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But what I want you to know is that that belief is completely false. It couldn't be more false. The Bible tells us an entirely different story. The Bible tells us that deep down inside every person at the very core, there is the opposite of good, evil. And that is the default inherent state of every person. And I'll show you, if you look back here at Ephesians chapter 2, and remember, this scripture is talking about who we were before coming into a relationship with God. Look at the very last verse, and what you see up on the screen there. We are described as children of wrath. That is such strong language. Children of wrath. But this is a consistent theme all throughout scripture. Let me read you Romans chapter 7, verse 18. You don't have to go find it. I'll just read it for you here. This is Paul speaking. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. It's another term for the sinful nature. Paul even goes further than that. In three separate letters that he wrote in the New Testament, he describes us as enemies of God. And all this together is essentially saying that our true condition before knowing Christ 
is one of hopelessness, depravity, rebellion, enmity toward God, incapable of anything good. Now, here's the risk in going along with this popular belief of the inherent goodness in people. See, if I believe that my heart was inherently good, that means that one day I met Jesus and I got better. And that becomes my personal testimony, like my personal account of the gospel. And it goes something like this. I started my life as a pretty good person, I think, deep down inside. And, you know, one day somebody introduced me to Jesus and I started reading the Bible and I started to learn how to live, you know, even better than I lived before. I learned how to be a really good person. And so what really happened in the end is Jesus took me from being pretty good to being really good. And that, my friends, is a weak, puny gospel. Weak, flimsy, puny gospel. Because if you were already okay before you met Jesus, what need did you have for salvation? Like, did he, you know, give you a little sanding off of the rough edges, a little spiritual polishing? No. The Bible tells us that before we met the Lord, we were wretched creatures deserving of nothing but wrath upon wrath from God. We were enemies of God. We were directly opposed to everything that he is, void of anything good. God had every reason to destroy us. He had every reason to just wipe out our memory for all of eternity because that's what God does. He annihilates his enemies. He takes every trace of sin and of evil and he he just wipes them all out. So the only thing that remains is the glorious, holy perfection of who he is. We were not on his team. As much as we want to think about ourselves being on God's team from the very beginning, we were not. We were his, we, we were his enemy. We were the villain. And in the story of God, the villain does not win. Think of it this way. The heavenly host, the, the, all the angels in heaven would have applauded. They would have glorified God at our destruction because we were his enemy. I I, Dan, I was personally his enemy. But would you believe that the moment I called on his name for help, he took me from that wretched place and he made me perfect in the spiritual realm. Perfect, not like pretty good, but sinless, stainless, bright white, no wrinkles, because he no longer sees that wretched creature that I used to be. Instead, he looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Christ because I wear him. It's all over me, and that's the gospel. Do you see the difference? There's there's the weak, puny gospel where it's like, yeah, yeah, I was a pretty good person before, but Jesus enhanced me. He made me a better person. I went from being pretty good to being really good. Weak, puny gospel compared to the magnificent, glorious gospel where Jesus wipes away every memory of that wretched creature that I once was, and he calls me perfect and calls me his son. But we will never see it that way until we understand the depth from which we've been pulled. The sinful nature. Sometimes I think we view it like this. If you can imagine in your mind in a, a giant football field where the entire human race is lined up on the 20-yard line and God is in the end zone. 
And, and all of humankind is straining to make it through the defense to be in the end zone with God. And God stands and he looks out at all the people and he's like, I'll take you and I'll take you and I'll take you. No, yeah, you, yep. And we think to ourselves, that is so unfair. But here's the reality. While we're all lined up on the 20-yard line, we are not inherently trying to strain and get into the end zone. We are inherently sprinting in a dead sprint in the opposite direction to the opposite end zone. If we want to think about what's fair, God should have let us run to our deaths in the other end zone. He should have even given us a swift push in that direction. He would have been right to do so. But here's the shocking truth. He reaches out his arm and he snags a few of us by the ankle and he pulls us back into his strong embrace so that we'll never get away. Why he does that, I have no idea, but he does, and that's all that matters. Maybe when you think about all of this talk about being an enemy of God, it seems extreme, you know? Because when you think back on your life, you imagine, you know what, I, maybe I was never super friendly toward God, but it's not like I ever had anything against him, you know? Or maybe you're someone here who has not committed your life to Jesus, and you just feel indifferent about him. It's like... I'm not, I'm not passionately in favor of Jesus, but I'm not passionately against him either. And the Bible tells us that indifference toward God was never an option. We always have been and we always will be either his enemy or his friend. And nowhere in between. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, describes us as enemies when God made his first move toward us. Colossians chapter 121, listen to this, says we were formerly alienated from God and hostile in mind. You know, for some of us, it's going to take some faith to to believe that we were actually hostile toward God. That's the way it is with me. I never felt that way. But just like it requires faith to believe that Jesus can make us righteous when we don't feel righteous, It requires the same kind of faith to believe that we were once his enemy when we didn't feel like his enemy. The Bible says it's so, and so it is so. Because sin is our nature. Now let's talk for a few minutes about where it came from. It's not something that we learned, and it's not something we picked up along the way. It's inherited. We were born with it. How is that possible? How are we plagued with this sinful nature in the first place? The Bible tells us that it came from one man, from the first man, Adam. Now, to understand how all this works, we're going to read a big section of Scripture right now. And fair warning, it's a little bit hard to slog through. So we're going to read through it, hang with me, and then I'll help summarize it when we finish. This is one case where it's probably better to look at the Bible next to you on your chair or your own personal Bible, but I will put it on the screen. But as you can tell, the words are tiny. Okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It's on page 942 in your Bible if you have one. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I'll read. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everybody take a deep breath. That is a lot of scripture. Let me help boil it down to the main point. Here's kind of what this whole thing is saying. One man can single-handedly alter the eternal destiny of the entire human race by one action. This is a principle that the Bible is teaching us, and it's a pattern. I'll say it again. One man can single-handedly alter the eternal destiny of the entire human race by one action. Okay, so it's a pattern. We saw it first with Adam. Adam sinned, and instantly all of humankind became sinful and separated from God. So in that case, one man by his one action, had a profoundly negative impact on the entire human race. But then we saw the pattern repeated with Jesus in the New Testament. And in that case, one man, by his one action, had a profoundly positive impact on the entire human race. Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and instantly, anyone who believed it was made sinless and restored to God. Now, this is the part where I level with you, and I tell you that for most of my life, I have had a real problem with this section of Scripture, because it just seems so unfair to me. This idea that the sinful act of Adam, one guy who lived thousands and thousands of years ago, just blew it for the entire human race. He introduced the sinful nature. It's like this hereditary disease that gets passed from generation to generation, And it's in our blood. We never even had a chance. Because Adam infected us with this disease before we even existed. Before we were even born. Before we even had a chance to contract the disease on our own. And and I get it that I have to be infected with the disease so that I understand my need for God. So that I can come to him for a cure. And that draws me closer to him. And that's a good thing. And I get that. But at the same time, it's like, why 
did the introduction of the sinful nature into the human race have to be automatic? I mean, I feel like I would have done a fine job of sinning on my own. But I never even had a chance to live in perfect obedience to God. What's with that? That, that principle has just always bothered me because it seems so unfair. And maybe you feel the same way about that. But here in Romans 5, God is urging us to think about it differently. Let's talk about that for a minute. Remember, this is a pattern. So, God does this all the time in the Old Testament. He introduces us to a pattern so that we can see it first in the Old Testament and then we can understand what to expect from him in the future, like in the New Testament. In this case, he introduced this principle with Adam so that we would be familiar with it already when we see Jesus in the New Testament. Here's how it works. We're able to understand how Jesus can single-handedly make us right with God apart from our own effort only because Adam first single-handedly made us wrong with God apart from our own effort. Even if Adam had never sinned, of course, we would have all sinned plenty on our own, right? We would have dug our own graves. But if we had gotten into this mess all on our own, don't you think we would have been tempted to try and get out on our own? Which is impossible. So by having Adam blow it for all of us, apart from our own effort, God is setting us up to understand how Jesus can rescue us apart from our own effort. Without Adam's failure that plagued us with a sinful nature, we would not have a full understanding of our salvation through Jesus Christ. We wouldn't even see a need for it. I always feel like these things are a little bit easier to understand with an illustration. So let's illustrate. I live in a, uh, a little neighborhood that's surrounded by wooded land. Here's what it looks like. 500 acres of wooded land, just straight forest out there. And sometimes I imagine what it would be like if I owned it all. And I can just imagine myself sitting in my backyard, looking out across this vast wooded land that is my domain, you know. And let's just say for the purpose of this illustration that being in my backyard is like being in a right relationship with God. It's a place where it's all good. Freshly cut green grass, plenty of shade, lawn chair, and a cool drink. And that's where I want to live, in a right relationship with God. But then there's that 500 acres of forest out there. And it's so tempting because I wonder what adventures are waiting for me out there. And for the purpose of this illustration, let's say that being in the woods is like being in sin. And one day I decided that it's time to go for a walk in the woods. So I leave my backyard and I step into the forest and I continue walking for some time. And after a while, I look back and I can't even see my house anymore. It's like stepping out of a life of obedience and a right relationship with God into a life of sin And the woods is fantastic. I mean, the further I walk in there, the deeper I get, the more beautiful it looks. All the rich colors and the the sounds of the different creatures. I'm enjoying myself so much that I completely lose all track of time. But just like plunging into a life of sin, at some point it just stops being fun when you realize how far you've wandered. So the sun's starting to get low in the sky when I finally realize... I have no idea where I am. And I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. My feet are sore. My belly's rumbling. 
I'm pretty sure I just walked through a patch of poison ivy. It's about to get dark. I don't have any shelter. I don't have any food. I can't get stuck in the middle of this woods in the dark. And I start to panic a little bit. And I think, you know what? I I need help. So I reach for my cell phone. And before I dial the number, I just take a pause. Okay, deep breath. Let's think about this for a second. I am literally lost on my own property. This has the potential to be really humiliating. I do not want the authorities to come and rescue me just so I can end up on the evening news as that guy who got lost in his backyard. (laughs) That would be super embarrassing, and I have my dignity to preserve. And that's when I come to the most foolish conclusion of all. I don't need to be rescued. I don't need to be saved. I don't need salvation. I got myself into this mess. I'm going to get myself out. So I put my phone away, and I set out on retracing my steps. And I start looking for footprints, and I start looking for broken sticks on the ground and rustled up branches from the path that I took to get here. I start undoing all of those sinful behaviors that led me here. And instead, I do good things to reverse the effect. Because I figure, sure, surely, if I can do enough good things... I can retrace that path in the right configuration and get right back into correct, right standing with God in my backyard. And I'm pretty sure I can do it all on my own. I think that's how many of us view the Christian life. We imagine it like, you know, I had this inherent goodness in my heart. um, And then one day, you know, I decided to wander away from the path. And I did it for a lot of years. I did some really bad things that I'm not proud of. But then one day somebody introduced me to Jesus and I read about him in the Bible and he taught me a better way to live. And so, you know what? I decided to change my behavior and start living right. So I started making right decisions and you know what happened? I was able to undo all of those bad decisions that led to the wandering away and I found myself right back in a a right relationship with God where I started and I did it all on my own. That's not the gospel. Let me, let me share with you the reality of the Christian life. I didn't start in my pretty backyard in a right relationship with God. I started in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. This is what it looks like from a satellite image of South America. Let me zoom in a little bit. Now remember, the forest behind my house is 500 acres. The Amazon jungle is 1.3 billion acres. What I really wanted to do with this image is take the size of my yard and just overlay it on top. But when I tried to do it, it was smaller than a single pixel on my computer monitor. If being in the backyard, in the woods behind my house, is like being in sin, then being in the middle of the Amazon rainforest is complete alienation from God, the sinful nature. And I didn't wander in there on my own. I was dropped there by a helicopter with a blindfold over my eyes. And the moment my feet touch the ground, I rip off that blindfold just in time to see the tail end of this helicopter lifting off and blowing through the trees. And I hear the sound of its rotor as it roars off into the distance. That helicopter is Adam, the first man. And just look where he brought me. I am 
hundreds and hundreds of miles from civilization. I have no compass. I have no cell phone reception. The, the, the tree canopy overhead is so thick, I can't even see the sun for some form of direction. I have no food. I have no water, no shelter, just the clothes on my back. I could walk in a particular direction, but it's pointless. I am 500 miles from the nearest civilization. Look at this. This is the dense jungle that I have to cut through. I don't have a machete. I don't have any equipment. 500 miles from the edge of the Amazon rainforest. Maybe I could do five miles a day if I work really hard at it. That's a 100-day journey. What are the odds of me surviving 100 days in the, most, in the harshest environment on the planet? This alienation from God, this sinful nature where I have found myself is so oppressive that I can't possibly think of getting out on my own. I have no steps to retrace. I was placed here with no view of how I even got here in the first place. Now I could try to do some things to earn God's favor, but why? I am so separate from him. I'm so isolated from him. It would be pointless. So I decide, to, I decide to hunker down and just try to stay alive for as long as I can. And after a few days, I just give up all hope. And in my weaker moments, I almost imagine that helicopter coming back to save me. But that's ridiculous because, uh, well, first of all, that helicopter is the only thing that could possibly save me because no one else on earth even knows where I am. But then I try to push those thoughts out of my mind because in this dense jungle, 1.3 billion acres with this solid tree coverage overhead, no helicopter on earth could find me even if it wanted to. So that's the point when I decide that the best idea is to just lay down and die. Just as I'm about to fade away, I hear a faint but familiar sound. It's the sound of an engine and a rotor. And the trees part, and out of nowhere, this helicopter appears. But this time, the helicopter is not Adam. This time, but but it looks so much like the first one. This time, the helicopter is Christ. Remember how Romans chapter 5, verse 14 tells us that Adam is only a prototype of Christ who is to come. 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Christ the second Adam. Without that first helicopter dropping me in such a desolate place, I never would have longed for a second helicopter that looks just like it to come and rescue me. Without Adam's failure that plagued us with the sinful nature, we never would have longed for salvation through Jesus Christ. We wouldn't even see a need for it. There's much to be said about how Jesus accomplished this heroic rescue his plan, his execution, the aftermath. Ah, it's such a good story, but we don't have time today. For that, you can read the book. You're all holding it in your hands. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being honest with us in the Bible, as if you could be anything different than that. But thank you for showing us through the Scriptures What a mess we were in. 
before knowing you. What a mess we are in before we know you. Father, I pray that you would use the contrast to give us a proper appreciation for the salvation you have provided. I still have no idea why you did what you did, why you would take a bitter enemy and at great, great cost to yourself would make that bitter enemy the closest friend. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you for that. We just think about how bad it would be if you had not done that. Father, thank you for this free gift of salvation that you have offered. I pray that you would move each person here to take a step closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.